Luke 7, 24 through 35 today. Dave reminded me uh, coming into church today that as of yesterday, this is uh, the start of my second year as your junior senior pastor. And I want to express my gratitude to God for for Dave's support and for your support as a congregation. And and my prayer is as pastor and flock going into our second year together that we would continue to follow after our, our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, together and grow in him and grow in our service to him and, and see this flock continue to to serve our risen Savior. Uh, Luke chapter 7 this morning, before I, I read our passage, let me go ahead and pray and we'll study this text together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask this morning that the Spirit of Christ would be among us today at work, opening our eyes, fixing our eyes upon Jesus Christ as he is found in this passage. We ask that you would give us understanding, give us faith, give us repentance, And draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ as we study your word together today. It's all for Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Luke 7, uh, beginning in verse 24 through verse 35. Let's hear God's word together. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too. They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Well, as Christians, 
we talk a lot about salvation, but not always a lot about the Savior of our salvation. We talk a lot about the work of Christ, but not always a lot about the, the person of Christ. Uh, we think a lot about what Christ has done for us in the gospel, but we don't always dwell on who is Jesus. We think a lot about the benefits, but not always a lot about the benefactor himself. And so this morning, as we turn to this passage, I want us to focus our attention on Jesus. Now, there are a lot of characters in this story, John's disciples, scribes and Pharisees, tax collectors, and sinners. But I think if we pay very close attention, there's a great deal to learn in this passage about the Lord Jesus himself. And so that's what I want us to think about today. Five things in the story about who our Savior is. And as, as we look at this passage, the first thing we see, I think, is that Jesus is the comforter and defender of his people. You'll remember, you'll remember the background. We're sort of entering into the middle of the story here. But you'll remember from last week, John was languishing in prison, struggling with uncertainty about the identity of Christ. And so he sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him this very simple but important question, Jesus, are you the one that is promised or shall we be looking for another? And so Jesus responded in, in deed and in word and he, he sends the disciples of John back to John with a word of comfort, a word of assurance, a, a word that was meant to bolster John's faith that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah of old. And if you remember, what Jesus really did is he pointed John to his work as the Messiah and he pointed John to the word of God about the Messiah. He, he, he pointed John to what he was doing and he pointed John back to the word of God to say to John, John, look at my life, look at my ministry and see that the promises of God are being fulfilled in my ministry. Even if it's not as you expected things to go. And so as John's disciples left to go back to John, Jesus turned to speak to the crowd, I think, in defense of John the Baptist. John wanted to make sure that people weren't getting the wrong idea about the Lord's servant. He didn't want them to, to think wrongly about John and his faithful ministry. And so I think Jesus defends John by asking the crowd a series of questions in verses 24 through 25. Look at those with me. What did, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. John's pressing them. Jesus is pressing them. And Jesus is saying, John is none of those things. He's, he's not a reed blown about by the wind to and fro by the winds of, of popular opinion or, or culture. Think about his ministry. He has been 
more like a sturdy oak in the face of hard opposition. Nor is he like someone living a life of luxury and and ease. You, You went out to hear John, not because of his social status, not because of his his popularity per se, you went out to hear him because he was earnestly and honestly preaching sin and grace. He was calling people to repentance. He was calling people to trust in the one to come. Jesus is reminding the crowd of of the kind of man John is, a man of conviction, a man committed to the truth. And, And then he reminds the people that John is a prophet. He's Someone who's been sent by God to proclaim the word of God to the people of God. And so John is is upholding the reputation of his servant. He he stands up for him. He honors him. He upholds the name of John the Baptist. So what what does that mean for us, though, friends, as we think about this story? I think one of the things is what Jesus does for John... Jesus will one day do for all of those who have trusted in him and served them in their lives. I have lots of revelation on my mind because of Sunday school. I think of the great white judgment throne in Revelation 20. What What is Jesus going to do on that day when we as his servants stand before him, before the world, Yes, we've been imperfect servants. Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we've stumbled again and again. And Jesus in his grace has come and picked us up. But what is Jesus going to do on that great last day? He's going to uphold the name of his people. He's he's going to vindicate his people before the world. And so Jesus' comfort and and defense of John shows us something, I think, about our, our Savior. He is... A tender shepherd that defends his flock. And and in this passage, when John speaks, what do we hear? We hear doubt. And yet when Jesus speaks, we hear words of comfort and words of affirmation. Jesus comforts his struggling servant, his doubting servant, and he defends him before the world. And even when John was, was wrestling and With doubt, what does Jesus do? Jesus blesses John. And even when John is is struggling, Jesus wants the crowd to know about the faithfulness of John in his ministry. I think it's astounding when we look at what Jesus is doing here. My friends, I think a lesson here is Jesus uses imperfect people in his kingdom. Jesus understands that his servants are not perfect, that they're in need of grace. And instead of beating John over the head for his weak faith on this occasion, Jesus comforts John's doubting faith with an assuring word that he is indeed the promised one. And he builds John up before the crowd by pointing the crowd to the faithfulness of John throughout his ministry. And friends, he comforts and defends us even when we struggle in the faith. And in the the second place, he's not only the comforter and defender of his people. Here we see that Jesus is the Lord incarnate. Now Jesus has 
It reminded the crowd that John is a prophet sent to proclaim the word of God, but Jesus says John is more than a prophet. He is the long-awaited forerunner promised in the Old Testament who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And so to prove his point, what does Jesus do? Jesus points the people, the crowd, to the word of of God. I think that's really important to, to notice. That even though Jesus is the son of God and could have simply said, John is the forerunner, believe me. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus makes his point by pointing the people of God to the word of God because he held up, he upheld the word of God as the final authority for God's people. And so he, he points them to the word to, to shape their understanding. I, I think it's, this is an important thing to notice because we, we need to see not only what Jesus is saying here, we need to see what Jesus is doing. There's a lesson here for us. Jesus does this throughout the Gospels, over and over and over again. He points the people of God to the word of God because he wants the word of God to shape their thinking and their feeling and their living. And so what we have here is the Son of God recognizing the the authority of the Bible to shape our thinking, to shape our lives. And Christ wants us to know the will of God and have our minds conform to the truth of God's word. And so he points his people to the word of God. And to shape the crowd's thinking about John the Baptist, he points them to the Old Testament. Jesus takes them to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which is a prophecy written about four centuries before John. And in Malachi 3, verse 1, the Lord says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So John is not just a prophet. He is the promised forerunner who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord himself. But you see, what Jesus is saying here, that's, that's astonishing about John, for sure. But what Jesus is, a, is saying about himself, I think, is even more astonishing. Because it is an affirmation of his divinity. Think about it for a minute. Because if, if, if John is the forerunner, according to Malachi 3, who is the one who is to come after the forerunner? It is the Lord of of the Old Testament. It is the Lord who says he will prepare the way for me. And if Jesus is saying, John is the forerunner, he's saying, I am the Lord who has come. He is the Lord who visits his people. He is the Lord who visits the temple. You see what this is implying about Jesus, that he is the Lord. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought of uh, Tiffany Nadonley with us last week. You remember when she was giving an update? She was telling us a story about a conversation she had with a brother and a sister, Callie, and she didn't mention, I think, the, the brother's name. Um, do you remember the conversation? These are two, two Muslims, and they, they asked Tiffany the question, why is it that you see Jesus as more than just a great prophet? 
Why do you confess that Jesus is Lord? We can give lots and lots of answers to that, but the answer according to Malachi and Luke is is right here, that John is the promised forerunner and Jesus is the Lord come in the flesh. That is the explicit claim Jesus is making here. John is the forerunner. I am the Lord. And so Jesus is the Lord incarnate. And and in the third place, we see that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, Jesus gives one final vindication of John. Not only is John a prophet and the forerunner of the Messiah, but look at what he says about him in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. According to Jesus, up to this point in the history of redemption, no one is greater than John. Up to this point in redemptive history, John the Baptist is the greatest man born among women. But then, Jesus says something that is utterly breathtaking because in the rest of verse 28, Jesus says, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. After John the Baptist, the least in the kingdom of God, the the weakest, the newest Christian, the most insignificant, is greater than John the Baptist. I I want you to think about how incredible that really is, that statement. This is, this is the man whose coming was prophesied 400 years before his birth. This is a man whose name was given to him by God himself through an angelic messenger. This is a man who, after 400 years of prophetic silence, was sent by the Lord to proclaim a word to the people of God. This This is a man who had the privilege of announcing the arrival of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is is a man who who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River and, and heard the Heavenly Father speak from heaven words of affirmation and love of his beloved son. And he he saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of, of a dove. This is the man about whom Jesus says, no one greater has ever lived before John. This is a man with such bold faith that he stood before kings and called on them to repent. And yet Jesus says, The weakest Christian is greater than John. It's it's amazing. How can this be? I think there's a lot of things behind what Jesus is saying here. I want to just focus on one thing today because it has a lot to do with our place in the history of salvation. John's, John's greatness at the end of the day, it wasn't ultimately about him. It was about his relation and service to Jesus. Many prophets came before John, but none got to see his coming. Many prophesied about Christ, but none had the the privilege and the blessing of announcing the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, but John did. John, John saw Jesus. John talked with Jesus, and yet the least in the kingdom is greater than John. 
And, and I think that's because we have seen even more of the saving work of Jesus Christ than John the Baptist was able to see. About John never got to see Calvary. He never saw the resurrection. But my friends, in the word of God and by faith, we can see our resurrected Lord, our crucified Savior, who has died to take away our sins. We are able to see not only promises made, but promises kept in Jesus. See, we don't live in the age of promise. We live in the age of fulfillment. And with that comes tremendous privileges. We can can look at the the life of Christ and and see the Lord our righteousness. We We can look at Christ on the cross where the suffering servant was stricken and and smitten by God, and and afflicted and crushed for our iniquities to take away our sins. We can look at the cross and see the, the seed of the woman's heel being bruised while the head of the serpent is crushed. You see, where we stand in redemptive history, we, we have access to the full revelation of God about his son. And And we are able to, by faith, see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying here should should deepen our love for the word of God and the revelation about Jesus Christ that he has given to us. Uh, it, it, It is astonishing, it's breathtaking, but it's true that you and I can know things about John the Baptist that, or about Jesus that John the Baptist only dreamed of. Think of I think about the words of the opening uh, verses of, of Hebrews when, when the author says that in, in many times, in, in many ways in the past, God spoke to his people through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And so we are, we are those who are able to look at the one who is the Lord of the universe, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who is in the very image of God, sharing in glory with the Father, and know that he is the one who has come and made purification for our sins. It's an amazing, it's an astounding thought that we are able to look upon the Lord Jesus not only in the depths of his humiliation, but in the glory of of his exaltation. And we are able to see him as as the one who has fulfilled the promises of of God. And so let me just make one application here as we think about the significance of what Jesus is saying here. I I think an application from this is very simply this. What makes a truly great life is knowing Christ. What makes a truly great life is knowing Christ more and more and more. A great life isn't a life of riches and status and popularity. It's a life that knows and serves Jesus. What, what is greatness according to Jesus here? John the Baptist, greatest man who has ever lived uh, before the coming of Christ. Here, here's a man who wore camel's hair, who lived in the wilderness, who ate locusts and honey and had his head chopped off for preaching the truth. And Jesus says, no one greater than John. 
Why? Because John the Baptist knew Jesus. Because John the Baptist understood that knowing and serving Jesus is really all that matters at at the end of the day. But my friends, do you believe that? Do Do you believe that what makes life truly great is knowing Christ? And do you really believe that growing in the knowledge of Christ is the greatest privilege of your life here on earth? And if so, are we living that way? Do we we come to church Lord's Day after Lord's Day pleading with God, give me more of Christ. Let me see more of the the glory and the beauty and the saving power of Jesus. And, and, And parents... When, when your children look at you and your attitude in coming to church, does, does it communicate to them that the greatest thing in this life is knowing Jesus? If we are, are not spending our lives striving to know and serve Christ, we are not living a great life. In fact, at, at the end of the day, we are living a tragic Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And what makes life great is knowing him. And so Jesus is the the comforter and and defender of his people. He's the Lord incarnate. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. And then in the fourth place, we see here that he is the friend of sinners. When Jesus spoke about his kingdom, people, people responded in two radically different ways. And this is what happens every time the gospel of the kingdom goes forth. Some repent and believe, and others do not repent and do not believe. And that is what happens on this occasion. In verses 29 through 30, if you look at those with me, we read, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So when some people heard the message of salvation, perhaps it was beforehand, whether it was from John or Jesus, some accepted it. They they declared that God is just, that God was, was right about their sin, that God was right about their judgment right about his judgment on their wickedness, and that he was right about everything else for that matter. They acknowledged their guilt. They acknowledged their need for repentance. They acknowledged their need for cleansing. But when others heard the, the very same message, the Pharisees and the scribes here, they did just the opposite. They rejected God's purpose for them. I thought about this week. I think that's one of the most terrifying phrases in the New Testament. They rejected the wise and gracious counsel of God for them. They rejected the the free offer of salvation to all who repent and, and believe on the Lord Jesus for salvation. And they refused to say, God, you were right all along. I am a sinner. No matter, no matter how much I try to be good enough, no matter how much I try to keep your law, no matter how religious I try to be, I am guilty and I need to be cleansed. They refused to say that. And so, instead, they were, they were dissatisfied with all that God was saying to them. 
And this is what Jesus is exposing in, in verses 31 through 34. Look at those verses with me. To what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you said, he is a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus Jesus compares the scribes and the Pharisees to children playing music, fickle children playing music in the marketplace. One of them says, play, play a song for dancing on, on the flute. But then another says, no, 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 play, play something more somber. Play us, play us a, a, a dirge for mourning. But then when the dirge was played, they were unsatisfied with that too. And so, you see, Jesus is saying, you, you Pharisees and scribes are like unsatisfied children. John the Baptist came preaching repentance and judgment. His, his message was, repent, for the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear fruit in keeping with repentance will be cut down and cast into the fire. And the Pharisees and scribes, they, they didn't like that. So they said, who, who is this, this crazy guy? You know, who does he think he is to tell us that, that we are sinners? He has a demon. And then Jesus came preaching grace and showing mercy and spending time with, with tax collectors and, and sinners. And they didn't like the tune Jesus was playing Either They didn't like John because he offended their self-righteousness. And they didn't like Jesus because he offended their religious sensibilities. And so Jesus is confronting them with the fact that it really, it really didn't matter whether it was John or Jesus preaching to them. The fact of the matter was that they simply didn't like the gospel. They, they simply didn't want to acknowledge the fact that they were sinners who needed the saving mercy of God, that they needed to repent and turn from their sins and trust in Christ. They didn't want to say, I'm a sinner, I need mercy, I need Christ. And you know, we, I found myself doing this many, many times. We often criticize the scribes and the Pharisees for their, for their self-righteousness. But my friends, how many people today are basing their standing before God on their own religiosity and self-righteousness. And it, and it manifests itself. You see it here, don't you? It manifests itself in the spirit of the Pharisees as they, as they constantly make excuses and show dissatisfaction to avoid facing up to their own sin and need for grace. I think such people, as we look at the Pharisees, such people are always always finding faults in others and, and pointing them out. They're always right. They're usually always angry about something. They can't be taught because they already know everything. They make it their business to criticize other Christians for being wrong, and they certainly can't stand the world for its sins. And all the while, they do not repent because they have always 
than finding some distraction from dealing honestly themselves with Jesus. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing in this this passage. They dismissed Jesus at at their own peril with insults, calling him a glutton and and a drunkard, which of course isn't, isn't true. But then they said something about Jesus that that was meant to be a deep insult against Jesus. But you know, it has actually turned out to be one of the most glorious truths about our Savior. They they spoke a truth here, didn't they? That he is indeed the friend of sinners and tax collectors. That's what our Savior is is like. He is a friend, not of the self-righteous, but of unworthy sinners who see their sin and they know it's a problem. And and in this story, see, the Gospel of Luke, it's filled with reversals. And the great reversal of this story is it's not the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not the religious who are actually the friends of Jesus. They turn out to be the enemies of Jesus. But it's these filthy, rotten, rejected despised, maligned, outcasted tax collectors and sinners who have agreed to God's assessment of their lives and have repented and trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of their sins. And so, friends, we see here he, Jesus is the friend of sinners. But a question I, I want to ask as we, as we wrap things up and come to the Lord's table what is, what is needed to be a friend of Jesus? It's not something you earn, but there is an important requirement. And we see it here. It's, it's turning from your sin and trusting in him for mercy. And when you do that, dear friends, you find a savior with open arms, ready to receive all who come to him in faith and repentance. And you find that he is the best of friends. A friend in the Words of Proverbs, who sticks closer than a brother. The best of friends because he is one who lays down his life for us all. We still have the fifth characteristic of Jesus that we need to think about, and we'll do so as we come to the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ our comforter and defender in this world. And may we be a people who revel revel in the privilege of knowing Christ, our Savior and King. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.